0: In the last time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. Thanks for worshiping with us. As this is our last worship service of the year, uh, this is our Christmas service for Grace Downtown. So we're so uh, thankful to worship with you tonight and celebrate Christmas. Um, What we have been singing about and what Melissa uh, just read in the children's Bible for us we are going to uh, talk a little bit about what it means to have a living hope. Tonight we're going to talk about when hope was born. This goes very nicely with the series through First Peter we've been going through as a church where the main verse that we have been looking at as we've looked at all the verses in First Peter is this idea of Jesus being our living hope and that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Before I jump into that and we jump into our Bibles, I want to talk to you about a couple things coming up next year as this is our last service of the year. A couple of things to be aware of. We want to encourage you to read the Bible in 2023. I think it's a great challenge to try to read through the whole Bible, if you've never done so, or even if you have uh, done so. And even if it takes more than a year, which it always takes me more than a year, it still counts if it takes more than a year. It's still about getting God's word into our heart. But we, we wanna encourage you to pick a Bible reading plan and to, um, Get after it in the new year and see how much of the Bible you can read in the new year. And in fact, we're encouraging groups to do that together. Read through the whole Bible and pick a Bible reading plan that works for you. And then when we gather together in our community groups, we'll be talking about what God is showing us in his word. So um, you are going to get an email um, pretty soon that is going to lay out some Bible reading plans for you. You'll get that on Wednesday and then after the first of the year as well. And there will be some recommended Bible reading plans. We encourage you to utilize one of those, or on the Version Bible app, uh, there's 50 different Read Through the Bible in a Year plans that you can do right on your phone, so I uh, encourage you to check that out. Our sermon series in the next year will be Living Stones as we go through the Old Testament, specifically Genesis and Exodus, and we look at God building his people. In 1 Peter, it said that you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Well, we're going to look at our heritage We stand on a foundation of Christ, but as he is building his house with living stones, we are in a a family that is bigger than ourselves, both now and in history. So we're going to take a look at Genesis and Exodus and take a look at what God is doing amongst his people. And as we do, we're going to see people that are just like us that are in desperate need of God's help and God's intervention, and that's what we'll see as we go through that. You can grab a study guide. We're gonna have a study guide that goes through uh, the sermon series. It's structured a little bit differently because it's Old Testament passages and because we're minimizing the amount of questions that we'll talk about in our small groups because the idea is read the text and come ready to share. That's going to be the majority of what we do. So as you leave tonight, we have study guides for that Living Stone series and you can also go to the website that you see on the screen there. We want to be people of the word. We wanna be built up into the people of God and God's word and spirit do that. We also wanna be people of prayer. So as usual, after the service tonight, if you'd like to come forward, we'll have folks ready to pray for you up here. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of hope. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, gives us a definition of what hope is. Hebrews 11, one says, "'Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. This is the classic biblical definition of what hope is, but in it is built in something that is very challenging. When we read that we it's the assurance of things that we hope for and it's the convictions of things we have not seen yet, there's encouragement there that we have something to look forward to, but it's a conviction about something we haven't seen. Herein lies the difficulty. This is the difficulty of hope. Hope is not hope in hope. It's not faith in faith. It's hope in something that we haven't fully realized or haven't fully seen. And there's times in life when it's hard to have hope. God's people have always needed hope. And we need hope for today. So where can we find this hope? Let's go to God and ask him for his help tonight. Heavenly Father, we know that the things of this world, they fade away. They don't give us the ultimate hope that we are looking for. God, we have all suffered from putting our hope in things that have not followed through, that have not provided for us. God, if we are church folks, sometimes we have even put our hope in you and it's been disappointing, so we need your help. God, we pray that we would hear from you tonight. Thank you for giving us your word and your spirit and people to hear from. We confess our need for you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As a church, we went through the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Peter is addressed to the elect exiles, the elect exiles. It begs the question, how did the people of 1 Peter become exiles? Well, we're going to do a quick, I promise, quick biblical history of exile. I want to spend way too much time on this and I have way too many notes, but one of my kids was already falling asleep during worship. So I promise to go quickly. How did the people of First Peter become exiles? First, God's people have always been exiles. God's people have always been exiles. Not only away from heaven here on earth, but God's people have rarely in the history of the world been in their homeland, or been in a place of power. So they have been marginalized and they have been exiled. God gave purpose to Adam and Eve, as we'll study in the new year, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to be at home with their God, and perfectly in intimacy with one another, but we know the story. They sinned against God. They decided to determine right and wrong for themselves and went their own way, and so they are kicked out of the garden. They are put in exile from day day one after they sin. Then their first kids have trouble, Cain and Abel. Abel, his very name, uh, means a wandering one. You may have heard of the Jewish diaspora, God's people, the Jews scattered about. We think of different periods of history where that's the case, but if we look at the full Jewish history, it's really all the time. That they are dispersed. Even the term Jew is hard to determine the exact nature of the word and where it came from. There's a couple of different reasons for that. Most languages are derivative of a, another language, but Hebrew, in Hebrew this is not the case. And in fact, by people that study languages, Hebrew is not even considered a full language. Hebrew is a fragment of a language. That's because the Jews, God's people, their primary language was Hebrew, but they were so scattered, so exiled, so conquered, and so enslaved, their language never took hold in any of the major societies in the world. This is just in the Old Testament. Then between the Testaments and the Bible, we have 400 years of missing history. That's because in that 400 years, God was silent. There was no prophet, there was no priest, there was no king, there was no word from the Lord in those 400 years. God's people experienced silence. They experienced violence among one another and towards others and to them. They were scattered even further all over the known world. There was division among God's people. They split up into different groups and had different ways of approaching the fact that they were in exile. You had Pharisees who wanted a theocracy based on God's laws. You had the Sadducees who were syncretized with Rome and assimilated with those who were in power. You had the Essenes who were a separatist movement that withdrew from the community And then you had the zealots who wanted to take Rome by force. Then you have God's people throughout history conquered by the largest civilizations known to man, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Roman Empire. And then the promised Messiah, the one that Melissa just read about, comes and they hang him on a cross and crucify him. Then they start martyring his followers and you have the persecuted church. So then we get to 1 Peter and we see the elect exiles. Even when the promised Messiah has come, God's people are marginalized, they are exiled, they don't have a homeland. So this begs the question, are we exiles? Is there a connection between God's people being called exiles and us? I believe that we can be called exiled as well because we're created to know the God who made us. And each of us here tonight is in one of two categories. Either we don't know personally this God who has made us, or we know him but we're far away from him spatially. We're not with him currently. We feel separated from him, so we feel in exile. This time of year, there's a lot of things to be joyous about. There's a lot of things that can make, even make us happy. But there's something also true about this time of year that the sadness, the hard parts, the things that grieve us or any family or relational difficulties are just exaggerated. There's a spotlight put on them and we have a feeling of what we wish things were like or what they used to be. So we're exiles. We're not home. We live in a time that the Bible calls the pain of childbirth. The Bible consistently uses a metaphor for this pain, this tension, this hope that's sure of something but hasn't yet seen it, and that metaphor is childbirth. It's the primary metaphor in the prophet Jeremiah the large book in the Old Testament that talks about the state of God's people compared to the promise of God. And the primary metaphor used over and over and over again is the pains of childbirth. Isaiah uses this also in the Old Testament to describe his own pain as a prophet of God, knowing what God has called his people to, knowing what God has promised them, but seeing the reality of God's people, he says he has the pain of a woman in childbirth. Micah chapter four, verses nine through 10, Micah says this, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king for you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughters of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. We see God's people In this state of waiting, the Bible calls it the pains of childbirth. This metaphor continues and becomes all too real in the birth, in the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus taking on flesh, God taking on flesh through the womb of a woman. Literally through the pain of childbirth. God promised his people a Messiah, an anointed one who would be the king of kings, the priest for his people, the prophet of God, the very words of God made manifest. The people longed for his coming. He said, the scripture said he would deliver his people from their sins and from their captors and he came as a baby through the pains childbirth and that night when Mary gave birth despite the song it was not a silent night if you have been at a birth it is not a silent event it is quite loud there are many noises that take place but if you have been present through childbirth or if you have been through childbirth yourself You know when the Bible says the pains of childbirth, you know what that pain really is. It is excruciating. It's the worst pain that you've ever experienced. You just want to make it go away. And then it does. And it is followed by the most joyous moment a mother could ever experience. That's the metaphor that the Bible is working with here. Hannah Anderson, in her Advent devotional, says it's incredible that the redemptive plan of God came through the pain of a woman in labor. Jesus, the one who upheld the universe, Jesus, the one who gave Mary life, Jesus, the one who created all things, came through the pain of childbirth. He experienced the pain of his people. He experienced the pain of his parents. He experienced the pain of the poor and the marginalized. And the God of the universe stepped down into our reality. And then Jesus in his ministry says that there will be times when we get worried about things going on in the world. My wife just shared a story she heard on the news this week about some of the weapons that are being traded back and forth in Ukraine. It's a scary time of year to be thinking about these kind of things, but we shouldn't be surprised. Here's what Jesus says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed for this must take place because the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be families, famines, and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. So, why does the Bible use this metaphor? First, we've been promised something. The chain of the pain of childbirth starts with a promise that there's something good, something joyous, something promised on the other end of the pain. So the Bible uses this metaphor because we've been promised something. If we don't know God's word, if we've never read the Bible, if this is your first time in a church, you know you've been promised something and it's a good life, right? We know it internally. We feel it inside of us. We feel this promise that life will be good and fulfilling and loving and caring. We feel it in the depths of who we are. And then as we get to know God's word, we see certain promises from him, and they seem not to line up with the reality of our experience. We've been promised something. But the second part of the reality is there's pain. The loving, warm, safe, familial relationships that we all desire, that we feel like we're promised, don't always measure up or in fact are the source of some of our pain and hurt and maybe even abuse and suffering. There's pain. The things we see in God's word promised to God's people we don't always experience and so there's pain. There's the pain of living in a fallen world. There's the pain of the physical pain of our bodies groaning as they grow older. There's the pain of hearing about what's going on in our world. There's the pain of this Christmas or this holiday is not being the same as the ones that came before it. Or it is the same and that's what's painful about it. The Bible uses this metaphor of childbirth because we've been promised something there is pain and it doesn't feel like the promise will come it doesn't feel like it will come if you see a woman in the pains of childbirth there comes a moment where she just wants to give up it's like this isn't worth it i don't want to do this anymore get me out of here it doesn't feel like something good is going to come out of it on the other end it doesn't feel like the pain is ever going to end and We've experienced that, even if it's not in literal childbirth. And then we live in a place of hope, where even if we are certain of the final outcome of all of history and our salvation and what will happen after we die, we still live right here, right now, in pain. So these are some of the reasons that Bible, the Bible uses this metaphor of pain. We live in an age where we have made much progress to overcome certain aspects of pain. In 1932, English physician Montague David Eder wrote The myth of progress states that the civilization has moved and is moving and will move in a desirable direction we still buy into this myth of progress that we can just invent our way, think our way, educate our way, pay our way out of pain. It's the myth that progress tells us that if we just put our hope in overcoming through human ingenuity and human strength, that eventually we can overcome this pain and experience more of what we have hoped for. The true myth of progress is that we continue to place our hope in things that don't give us joy. They don't bring about the kind of life that we feel that we are promised. So we need a living hope. We need a living hope. And if we are to find a living hope, that living hope must first be alive right? It's got to be a living hope. Part of the problem is we keep putting our hope in things that can fade away, that we can lose, that we can fully consume, that can be taken away. We keep putting our hope in things that eventually die or pass away or move on or we consume. If there's a living hope, it has to be a hope that gives us life. It's got to do something for us at the end of the day. If we find a living hope, that living hope needs to lead to more and more life. It can't be a one-off experience. We've all had one-off good experiences, but this, a living hope, it's gotta give us hope all the time. And it needs to impact not just this life, but the life to come. So where do we find this living hope? Amy read, it for, read this passage for us at the beginning, First Peter chapter 1, verses three through five. in Jesus. The one who came fully God, but through the pain of childbirth. The one that Melissa just read to us about from the children's Bible. That Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, soon return, gives us a living hope. And it gives us something, it says it right here in the text, that is imperishable that is undefiled, that is unfading. It doesn't pass away. It doesn't fade away. It's alive. It keeps on living. It gives us life and it gives us hope for the life to come. Jesus offers this living hope. Jesus offers this living hope because he doesn't just sit up on high and say, work your way up to me. He comes down through the pain of childbirth and lives and walks and dies and rises again among his people. He always knows what we're going through. He can always empathize with our weakness, with our suffering, with our pain, because he too experienced pain so I said that this has to impact our life this has to lead to more and more life so in closing here tonight we're going to take a look at what do we do in order to have this living hope first we need to have patience have patience Romans 8 Paul writes to us for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patience. We have patience knowing that God is working through the waiting, he is working through the pain, he is working through the suffering, he is redeeming all things, and all things are under his feet. Jesus is the one that has the dominion. That's how the book of 1 Peter ends. Jesus is the one over all things. And he can overcome and provide through the most challenging circumstances so we can have patience. Next, we're instructed to pray. John 16. This is the teachings of Jesus. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And then he goes on to instruct them to pray in light of this. Pray to be reminded of how God provides. Pray to remember that something good is going to come from this. That's the husband's job in the childbirth. He doesn't have a lot to do, but one thing he does do is say, you're almost there. You can make it. You're going to make it. when we pray, Jesus is telling us here that when we pray, the Holy Spirit reminds us that something good is coming from this pain. So we pray through our pain. Number three, we can hopefully lament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are sorrowful. There is pain. Pain is real. Suffering is real. We can't think our way, act our way, pray our way out of pain. There is pain, yet we can always be rejoicing rejoicing. Always be rejoicing. We can have a hopeful lament that laments our situation, that is honest about our situation, that says this is darkness, but then we cry out to God to drive out the darkness. As we see wars and rumors of wars, we can sing about, pray about, and look forward to the day when all guns will be melted down and made into implements for gardening We can have a hopeful lament even as we see the reality of our and the world's suffering. This is what a living hope looks like. It's not hope in hope. It's not a fantasy. It's not faith in faith. It is a hopeful lament in God working while we wait. And lastly, we rejoice. 1 Peter Chapter one, verses six through seven, this is right after Peter has told us where a living hope comes from and what he looks like. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice, not in your circumstances, not in hoping that everything works out for the best, not in hoping that you won't experience more pain like you have in the past, not hoping that this Christmas will be different than last Christmas. No, in this you rejoice. Jesus is your living hope. We can rejoice right here, right now now, one of the biggest mistakes and one of the biggest joy robbers in my life has been waiting to rejoice, waiting till I just have that next thing, waiting until this hard thing is passed and this good thing comes, waiting till I have something to look forward to and then I get it, waiting till things work out the way I want them to be, instead of rejoicing right here, right Now, we don't rejoice in our circumstances because circumstances are a roller coaster in a broken world. We don't rejoice in our emotions. We don't rejoice in our feelings. We don't rejoice in sentimental moments at Christmas time or everything working out the way we want it to. We rejoice in this, Jesus, our living hope. He gives us reason to rejoice right here, right now, no matter how broken and messed up your family Christmas is gonna look next weekend. The right response to what we're hearing here tonight is to continue to rejoice. Would you stand with me? As we continue to rejoice, To remember Christ, our living hope, God come to dwell among his people. Jesus, thank you for coming. Jesus, thank you for dying for a wretch like me. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in all that you have done. We rejoice that we can know you. Jesus we pray that we would look to you, our living hope, and that we would walk away here from tonight not just having hope in hope or feeling better emotionally, but we would rejoice in what you, Jesus, have done for us.